0: You're listening to a sermon from the Pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts in chapter 10. Acts chapter 10, and this morning we're going to be reading verses 44 through 48. You'll find this on page 919 of the Pew Bible. Acts chapter 10, verses 44 through 48. Hear the word of God. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. The conversion of Cornelius and his household in Acts chapter 10 is the longest single narrative in the book. And I think that highlights the importance of it in the mind of Luke and the Holy Spirit who inspired him. Peter, called a rock by Jesus, was led by God to bear witness to the rock, who is Jesus, before the Gentiles. And it was one of the most crucial transitions in the New Testament spread of the gospel. Philip had witnessed to the Ethiopian eunuch, you remember, and he himself was a Gentile, but that was just a foretaste. Here we have this unmistakable step in the progress of the Gentile mission. So Cornelius and his household, they assemble, they want to hear Peter's explanation of the gospel. And we found the apostles' sermon last time to be thoroughly Christ-centered. He highlighted, if you remember, the Lord's baptism, his death, his resurrection, and his second coming. And all the events he mentioned centered on Jesus and the stages of his work. We learned, therefore, that Christianity is based on historical facts, on verifiable events. Not like many other religions who are based on esoteric teachings with obscure origins. We don't know who wrote their books. Christianity is based upon historical facts and the testimony of credible witnesses. It's not a leap of faith. It's the most rational thing we can do. The son entered history. He appeared in human nature. He accomplished salvation. He was baptized. He lived and died. He rose again, and he's going to come again to judge the world in righteousness. Historical events. And then John writes his first epistle. And he starts out by saying this. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, we proclaim also to you. Do you remember when Jesus was standing there in the upper room and the unbeliever Thomas couldn't believe? And Jesus says, put your finger in my hands and in my side. Don't be unbelieving. Believe. He touched him. And we have the inspired testimony of eye and ear witnesses who are credible. And their testimony was published. It's been protected by providence. And we know who wrote it. We know why they wrote them. And they're consistent with scripture. Do you realize that very few people that I know of will will not believe in the existence of Plato? They accept his writings without question. And do you realize that from the time Plato lived to the earliest manuscript we have from him is 1,250 years? No question. John says, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he's born concerning his son. Our faith rests upon historical facts that Jesus has revealed through the Spirit of God. And God intended for Cornelius and his household to hear these facts from the apostle. And it was while Peter was preaching the gospel that the Holy Spirit fell upon the hearers. And this is exactly what happened. They were filled with the Holy Spirit, just as it happened at the Pentecost, when all those Jews were present from every nation under heaven. Back then at Pentecost, there was a sound like a mighty rushing wind and tongues of fire, and those 120 disciples were spirit-filled and spoke in other tongues. And the very same phenomenon occurred in the house of Cornelius. And clearly, Gentile believers, strangely, have now become equal members in the church. God accepts them As beloved children and full members of the family. And that's why those six believing Jews who came with Peter were absolutely amazed. These were uncircumcised Gentiles, strangers to the covenants for generations. And yet we're told that the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on them. How surprising. The Holy Spirit being poured out upon the heathen. And these Jews were stunned. It was something they'd never expected. But they could not deny the obvious reality of God's anointing. This is what God was doing. They heard with their ears. They saw with their eyes. Nobody could refute it. These believing Gentiles were speaking in tongues, just like at Pentecost. And it was a clear indication that believing Jews and Gentiles are now equal in his sight. The barriers that once distinguished Jew and Greek were being broken down. And God was doing a new work, an amazing work. And the mystery had been revealed. That is to say, Gentiles, you and I, for the most part, I think, Gentiles are fellow heirs, Members of the same body, partakers of the promise, the promise of the Holy Spirit. Here was this visible consecration, this public sealing of these Gentile believers. And Christ, the king, was making clear his will. And so it's no surprise that Peter declared the Gentile believers should be set apart. Can anybody withhold water for baptizing these people, he said. They've received the Holy Spirit. The outpouring spirit was evidence that these believers were acceptable to God, and the gift was the greatest benefit among all the benefits of the covenant, the Holy Spirit. This is what Jesus said before he ascended. He said, behold, I'm sending the promise of my father upon you. But stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. The promise, not a promise, the promise, which is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. He descended on God's people in greater measure than ever before. And now the church furnished with all of the gifts and graces necessary can fulfill its mission. The promise, the great sanctifier whose influence in our hearts is necessary for salvation. Because apart from the Holy Spirit, we could not recover from our lost and sinful condition. You know what Jesus said. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. The only way, in other words, that sinners like you and I will ever come to Christ Is by the power of the Holy Spirit. Don't let anybody ever tell you differently. He is a gracious sanctifier. Our sinful state is fully known to Him. He enters the soul knowing from the start all of its weaknesses and all of its wickedness. In full view of my corruption, He deliberately takes up residence in my heart. That's grace. And the converted soul becomes his permanent home and workshop, because God said, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And the spirit is not only faithful to his work, but actually, and this is surprising to me, he delights in it. A corrupt individual filling the heart, sanctifying us, preparing us for heaven, and he takes delight in it. That's an amazing thing. And that same spirit fell upon Cornelius and his household as they listened to the word preached. And so Peter said these spirit filled Gentile believers should be baptized because after all, if they received the inward thing signified, why deny the outward sign? They'd already been baptized with the spirit, so why not be baptized with water? In other words, if God baptized them, who are we to withhold the water? Because you see, while unbaptized, non baptized, those folks were not yet full fledged disciples. We have to see that. Jesus said when he commissioned the church, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. How? Baptizing them and teaching them. Those two things. They were saved, they were anointed. They were recipients of God's favor, but an aspect of discipleship was missing. And they had to submit to the lordship of Christ. When he tells you to do something, you do it. And baptism is an identification with everything Jesus said and did. Because the Lord Jesus himself said, Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. You see, no one is neutral. There is no middle ground. We are either for him or against him. Those who neglect him or who may be indifferent to him are no different from those who oppose him. That's what he's saying. It's all the same with God. We must confess the name of Jesus Christ. He said in Matthew 12, verse 30, whoever is not with me is against me. If we are to be delivered from wrath and to be saved for the life to come, We must take him as Lord and Savior. And this we can do, of course, only when the Holy Spirit gives new life in Christ. So one of the things that you and I learn from this, I believe, is not only something of who God is, but also of what God does. You know, last time from this chapter, we learned that the Lord is no respecter of persons, I think this week we learned that God works through ordinary means. You know, there's some modern people, even in the church, who claim that the old ways of worship are no longer effective. How are we going to reach a generation that's been reared in multimedia? They tell us that preaching is outdated because you and I, we live in a visual age now. What we need our images and videos and pictures. But as the elder read this morning, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. God hasn't changed. The gospel hasn't changed. The method of communicating apparently hasn't changed. He could have conveyed the good news directly without sermons Perhaps he could have revealed this in a dream or in visions or even by his own voice. But for his own reasons, God has conveyed the gospel through preaching. He did so through Peter's sermon and he does so today. That's how he chooses to do it. It's how he chooses to do it today. As Paul writes, how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? It's as strange for me to stand here as for you to sit there, but this is what God tells us to do. Through preaching the message of Christ crucified, God is pleased to save sinners. And it was by means of Peter's preaching that the Holy Spirit was given to Cornelius. While Peter was still saying these things, according to verse 44, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. He was preaching, they were listening, God was working, and the apostle did not labor in vain. The entire household was converted. And this spirit, the Holy Spirit, the infinite and eternal God, descended upon that little congregation with great power. And their minds were savingly enlightened, and their hearts were then renewed, and their desires were totally reoriented. And Cornelius and his household were filled, and they began speaking in tongues and praising God. And God was bearing witness to the truth of what Peter was preaching. You know... It says they put him to death, but God raised him on the third day. And that's the message of Christ. And it's the message of the cross. Because it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. It's folly to Gentiles. It's a stumbling block to Jews. But it's good news to God's children. Strange thing. All the world's wisdom, you can gather it all up, and it cannot find a way to deliver us from sin. We preach Christ crucified, the power of God and the wisdom of God, according to Paul. And God loves to confound the proud and to confuse the wicked. And he chooses to save those who hear the gospel and respond in faith. So I think what this means is that you and I should do as we're doing and commit ourselves to the ordinary means that God has appointed. We're taught in our standards to devote ourselves especially to the word and to sacraments and to prayer. And all three of these things had a prominent role in the episode of Cornelius. Remember, it was while Cornelius and Peter both were praying that God revealed the plan. And it was through preaching the word that the household was converted. And the sacrament of baptism was a confirmation of the promise. And it was just another illustration of how God is pleased to use ordinary, ordinary means. Some say it's too simple. Some say this is too ordinary every week listening to this guy talk every week. We want extraordinary means. And we run to and fro from one exciting experience to another, large gatherings and stirring music and motivational conferences. And you know something? The bigger, the better. The more exciting, the more successful, right? but that's not how God usually works. I'm not saying he never works like that, but I'm saying that's not how God usually works. That's how the world works. God loves to shame the wise and the strong and those who proudly boast. And what he does is to work quietly and secretly and invisibly through humble means. Jesus told a parable saying that the kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. And the leaven worked quietly, secretly, invisibly. And therefore, I think it behooves us to be diligent in our use of these ordinary means. Isn't the example of Jesus himself enough to convince us? Luke tells us that he came to Nazareth, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Week after week, there goes Jesus to the synagogue. It was the practice of Jesus Christ himself to be at public worship and to partake of the ordinances. And if the Lord Jesus did it, I think we should do it too. The gathered assembly is where God loves to conquer rebellious souls. It is in the outward and ordinary means that you and I get a taste of heaven. This is where the Lord takes delight in the fellowship of his people. Psalm 87.2, it's a very strange, but it's an important verse. It says this, the Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Now think of that. He loves those gates in Jerusalem more than all the households that span the whole scope of Israel. Why? Because he takes special delight in where his people meet. God delights in you and us, you and I, at all times. But he especially delights in the gathered assembly. And that's why David preferred one day in God's house over a thousand outside. We need the ordinary means. And I think one of the implications of this has to do with something prompted by COVID. You know, in the shutdown, many churches developed live stream services, and it was a blessing, a real blessing. And that was a period in which it was necessary to worship virtually online. And for important medical reasons, some people should continue to do so. We understand that. We're thankful for the technology. And yet many Christians apparently have grown used to watching the church service online. They think it's far more convenient to sit at home in their pajamas and to watch TV. And yet I don't think there's reason now for them to absent themselves from public worship. I think somehow we are tempted to adopt the worldly principle which says that the ends justify the means, right? Well, we still hear the sermon. We still hear the prayers. We can worship just as well sitting at home. But you see, the Lord is as interested in the means as he is in the end. He desires us to be assembled, And he wants us to present ourselves to him. The word translated church is literally assembly. It's called out once. You're called out from the world and assembled in his presence. Psalm 96, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name, bring an offering and come into his courts. You can sing praises at home, but you can't take the supper on a couch. The Lord's Supper has to be administered in the church where God's people are gathered. So let's not slight the wisdom of God who summons us to public worship. It's there through the ordinary means that he promises to convey redeeming grace. And if we stay away, we deprive ourselves of the most important means of spiritual growth. I was glad when they said to me, let's go to the house of the Lord, said the psalmist. But that leads to a more important observation, I think, and that is to appreciate more highly the glorious gift of the indwelling Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And it's that word, Peter's sermon, that the Spirit drives home to the heart. The Spirit is pleased, in other words, to use the very instrument that He inspired. Because this word, this big book that I read from, in and of itself will convert nobody apart from His power. The letter kills, said Paul, but the Spirit gives life. And in conversion, the Holy Spirit drives that home, drives that word home. And He applies it to the heart. It's called a living word. Do you know why? Because the Holy Spirit makes it effectual. All a preacher can do is proclaim the gospel to a lost and dying world. That's all we can do. Makes no difference how logical or eloquent or forceful the sermon might be. Might be more enjoyable for you if it's logical, but it makes no difference The Spirit has to accompany the truth to make it effectual. Just as he filled those dry bones in Ezekiel's vision, so the Spirit filled those Gentiles, and they spoke in tongues, and they burst forth with praise, and it was glorious. And so when the Holy Spirit falls, as Spurgeon tells us, hearts are broken, souls are saved, and sinners are born again. That's a glorious thing. It's the work of God's almighty power and grace. Often we can be fooled into thinking that nice people are spirit filled Christians. But you know something? It's not about being nice, it has to do with being brand new. The New Testament says that when the Spirit renews, you become a new creature, your heart is changed. Your soul is renewed, and your life then begins to be progressively sanctified. And it's important, I think, to distinguish between custom and conversion. Custom is natural, no grace. Conversion is supernatural, all grace. And you may be aware of the distinction that C.S. Lewis draws in his book of Mere Christianity between Dick Firkin and Miss Bates. You ever hear of that? Dick Furkin and Miss Bates? Dick Furkin, naturally friendly, good-looking, well-groomed, very nice. He had the benefit of loving parents and good training and a sound education. Dick Furkin is naturally charismatic, and people flocked to him. And of course, in this world, he became very successful. Miss Bates, on the other hand naturally cranky, unkind, rude, and downright prickly. Her parents were divorced when she was at a young age. She had been neglected, left to herself, did not receive good training. Nevertheless, God, in his rich mercy, for reasons known only to him, reconciled Miss Bates to himself through Jesus Christ. Even after conversion, Miss Bates struggled against sinful habits and she had to fight hard to follow Jesus. Now, believing Miss Bates was far less kind than unbelieving Dick Furkin. And everybody knew it. She was prickly, annoying. He was the kind of guy you'd love to spend time with. But his being nice was not the fruit of genuine Christianity, because he didn't believe. She had a long way to go before she would ever be as nice as Dick Furkin. He didn't have a mustard seed of faith or grace in his unbelieving soul. She had been born again, and she had been renewed by the power of the Holy Spirit, and on the day of judgment, mind you, nice? Dick Firkin is going to be condemned for rejecting Jesus. But on that same day, stumbling, bumbling, prickly Miss Bates is going to be welcomed into heaven. With these words, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Because you see, despite her lack of charm and refinement, she loved Jesus. And she worshipped him just like we're doing this morning. Each of these people had certain temperaments from natural causes. Dick was nice. Miss Bates was not. But she was a follower of Jesus. She had been born again by the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit, and that makes all the difference. So the question I leave with you this morning is simply this. Does the Holy Spirit dwell in your soul? He's willing. Invite him. He'll come. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for not only the ordinary means of grace, which you surprisingly are pleased to use in the conversion of sinners and the building up of believers, but also for the Holy Spirit, who fills our hearts and minds and assembly, who enables us to love Christ and to follow him, however imperfectly. We pray that he'll enable us now to sing praises with hearts that are filled with joy and gratitude, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us. RedeemerOhio.org